And so today we're just going to start with the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 32, so verse 1 to 14. Let's listen. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that I my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. So the title of both this series and today's message is Who is Your God? And I suppose I'm using this title in more than one way. So on the one hand, the question before Israel in this passage is literally who is their God? Who are they going to worship? Are they going to worship an idol that they have made or are they going to worship and follow the Lord who set them free from the land of Egypt? But the question also can be read another way. Who exactly is your God? In other words, what is he like? Who is this God uh, that brought Egypt and brought Israel out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness into the promised land? And so those questions we're going to be looking at today. So the broader question of the whole series is, what is God like? What is this God like who we worship? And uh, what's the concept of God that emerges from these three chapters? But this is a story uh, about Israel's rebellion and eventual restoration, these three chapters, 32 through 34 of Exodus. And one of the things that's most remarkable about this is that they have, we've just finished a whole series of wonderful events uh, culminating right before this reading of Moses, of Moses receiving from the hand of God the Ten Commandments written on, on tablets by God's own hand. And, and so they have met God, they've heard from God, they've made a covenant with God, and at the first opportunity they rebel against him. And, you know, they were held captive as a nation in Israel. Uh, Israel was held captive as a nation in Egypt for over 400 years. And they were made into slaves and they were serving for hundreds of years in slavery. And then the Lord set them free. It's remarkable, it, apparently, how often uh, they seem to want to go back to the ways of Egypt, the ways that they learned, the idolatry that they saw around them there. You know, there's something called a Stockholm Syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of that. But the Stockholm Syndrome is, is a, uh, of course, named after the city, the capital of Sweden, but it's uh, a syndrome where people who are kidnapped or captive 
develop a sympathy for their captors and an, and an antagonism against those who came to set them free. And it's a recognized syndrome, especially when people have been captive and held captive for a long time. And they start to identify with their captors and they start to lose their identification with those who, uh, that they came from or the people that have come to set them free. And it's, uh, and, uh, it's almost like Israel is going through Stockholm Syndrome. They've come out of slavery and yet somehow their sympathies lie with, with the, the way of life that they left behind in Egypt. So let's set the context here. In Exodus chapter 20, going back a few chapters now, you should probably, if you don't know what what is in Exodus 20, you probably need to read it. Uh, That's the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's very, very important. Two places in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are listed, uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and uh, it's probably a good chapter to read. But At the start of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 1, we read this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. Very next verse, he starts on the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number 1. Commandment number two, verse four, you shall not make for you, shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the first two commandments, and both of them are speaking against idolatry and having other gods. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make idols, images, and bow down to them. Those are the first two commandments. But the context is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the God, he's saying, who redeemed you. I am the God who rescued you. I am the one who brought you to this place. Look what I've done for you. Now I'm going to tell you how to live my way and the way that you need to live. God, by the way, in the text, Exodus 20, when God is speaking this, He's literally speaking from the mountain. Israel is gathered below Mount Sinai and God comes down on the mountaintop and there's thunder and lightning and everything. And and he speaks the whole nation. He is God speaking the Ten Commandments out loud from the top of the mountain. And this is, of course, a terrifying thing. And a wonderful thing. But this is the God who brought them out of slavery. Brought them out of Egypt. And the first thing that Israel says to Moses, the leader, after they hear the Ten Commandments is, as it, and they've been, they've been spoken out loud by God from the mountain. First thing they say is, Moses, you speak to God. We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't want to hear him. We, we, we don't want to hear God ourselves. You speak to him and whatever he tells you, tell it to us and we'll do. So the first reaction to hearing the Ten Commandments spoken is we don't want to hear from God directly. We want someone to speak to us for God and to listen to God for us. And that's what happens. Then Moses is becomes God's mouthpiece to Israel. So that's Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus 21 through 23, we have the covenant legislation, the covenant laws. In this whole passage in Exodus, God is making a covenant with Israel. He is saying, I will be your God and you'll be my people. And this is how you are to live. He's saying, I've rescued you. I've formed you into my people. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to relate to me. This is how you are to worship me. And so 
21 to 23, the chapters are the covenant legislation, the laws. In Exodus 24, then, after hearing the covenant, after hearing the commandments, after hearing the laws and the promises, the people then, uh, Moses takes the book of the covenant and he reads it to the people and they say, yes, we will we will do it. We are going to acknowledge and join and commit ourselves to this covenant that God has made us with us, has made with us. He says, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And so Moses took the blood of a sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, look, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And by the way, uh, you know, that's what Jesus said the night before, uh, he was betrayed, betrayed as he was uh, with his disciples in the Last Supper. He said, as he shared the cup with them, and he said, "This cup is the blood of the my blood of the covenant. It's the blood of the new covenant that Jesus uh, enacted through his death and resurrection." So in Exodus 24, they affirm the covenant, and Moses and the elders go up the mountain and they see God. And they feast before him. They eat and drink and they, and, and they share a meal. And then Moses stays on the mountain. He goes further up the mountain and he stays on the mountain alone for 40 days. What then hap- What do we then get? In Exodus 25 through 31, we get the plans for the tabernacle. God gives Moses the plans that you, you're going to have, you're going to meet me in a tent, in a tabernacle. And this is exactly how you should build it. Here are all the plans. Here's the description. Here's the material you're going to make out of it. Here's how, here's the, the way you're going to dress the priests who come to me in that tabernacle. Six chapters of plans for how you're going to worship God in this new covenant, in, in this covenant that he has made with Israel. And at the very end of that, there's a section on the Sabbath day, how you should keep the Sabbath, the seventh day, to the Lord. And it basically says it's a sign of the covenant and of creation. And so that's what happens before our passage as we lead up to it. And the very last thing that happens, of course, is that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments uh, and uh, written on tablets of clay. Interestingly, Right after our passage, when we get at the end of chapter 34, we get the same kind of things revisited in reverse order. So again, we get the Sabbath day pronouncement, more Sabbath day rules or laws. Then we get the actual building of the tabernacle and the dressing of the priests. Basically, everything that God commanded is now being done. And and so this is kind of in between, we have this terrible moment of rebellion, of apostasy, of sin and idolatry and and restoration. And that's where we that's what we're going to see as we work through these chapters. And so this is a moment that could have led to utter disaster. It could have meant that Israel uh, was literally kept was pushed out or destroyed by God or, or, kept, or kept away from the covenant. But in fact, it's a time of restoration as well, as we will see. So that's kind of the, the broad context of where we're going. So it's rather ironic that just at the moment when in, in Exodus 31, uh, verse 18, just as at the moment where God's finished speaking with Moses on the mountain, he gives him the tablets of stone written with the finger of God containing the, the Ten Commandments. And right at that very moment, at the climax of Moses' time with God on the mountain, down below on the plain, everything's going wrong. Everything is going haywire. They are making and worshipping idols. So in verses 1 to 6 of our passage, we, we look at this and we and we really have a time when Israel is making their own gods. Let's, let's think about this, the impulse to idolatry, you know. Here we have, in a sense, it's impatience that leads to idolatry, right? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, 
Come, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You know, we want what we want, and we want it now, (laughs) and we turn to whatever will get it for us. Or we want what we want, and we turn to whatever we think will serve us in getting what we want. And look, that's the nature of idolatry and all kinds of, particularly the sort of pagan idolatry that, that Israel had been surrounded by. The gods are there basically to meet your needs. And, uh, and so you make a god, uh, in a, in a way that you think will meet your needs. And uh, that's what you worship. The gods, in a sense, are, the, are your creation, uh, that's going to serve you, even though religiously you're serving them. The impulse to idolatry is strong in humanity. Notice a couple of things in this, in this first verse, in verse 1 here, in Exodus 32. They say, this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, look, Moses did bring them up out of Egypt as a leader, but only under God and under the power of God's, under, under the power of God. And God had said it back in Exodus 3 uh, to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses is a man and not God. You know, they have been idolizing Moses already. Uh, and now he's not there. They're looking for another idol. He's been gone. And their dependence on Moses and not God, led them to reject the God who sent Moses. How easy it is to put leaders in the place of God, to substitute their access to God for our own, their gifts for ours, their prayers for ours, their Bible study for ours, etc., etc. How easy it is to... Treat our leaders like Israel treated Moses. On the one hand, they kind of feared him. He certainly had, he was in the presence of God. On the other hand, as soon as he's gone for a, for a month, you know, they want another idol because Moses says, in a, in a sense, being like an idol to them. You know, every week we gather. And we look at the Bible and we read through a passage of the Bible. We teach, we teach it and we, we listen to it and we, do, we think about it. But if that's the only Bible study you're doing through the, if that's through the week, if that's the only time you're reading the Bible is when you do it on a Sunday morning, then what's going to happen? You know, something, if something goes wrong, if, if for example, uh, if, you know, imagine if, if there was a disease to come in the community that we couldn't actually gather as church. Imagine if that might happen. So what would happen then to your life with God, to your walk with Jesus? What would happen to your own relationship with God? Would that disappear because you never read the Bible apart from in, on a Sunday in church? And, uh, and so we've got to have our own relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In verse 2 to 4, they make literally making their own gods. They said, make us gods who will go before us. By the way, when they say make us gods who will go before us, uh, literally that's what they would do, of course, uh, in, if, a, if a, in those days as nations or armies were going out to battle or going somewhere, they would make an image and they'd put it on a pole. Uh, and they were something like we might call that a standard or something. And, and uh, they'd make an image of their God and they'd put it on a pole and literally that would lead the, and someone would carry that. And so the God would go before them. And, and so here, exactly what kind of statue or image Aaron was making is not that clear. Uh, but, uh, that's possibly this phrase alludes to this idea that they want to make a God they can put on a pole and carry, he can lead, that God can lead them all the way to the promised land. And so Aaron says, you know, I'll, I'll take your earrings from your wives and your sons and your daughters. And he fashioned it with a, a graving tool. The word here for graving tool in the text just means something that you 
You can either peel off layers of something with a tool or you can decorate it. It's a, it's a, so this is uh, something that he's decorating and making shaping carefully. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, you might have... Uh, this is a direct act of disobedience, of course. We've just read in the second commandment, you know, uh, that you shan't make images and worship them. And even also in Exodus 20, verses 21 to 23, we read this. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I've talked to you from heaven. And he says to them again, You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor you shall make for yourselves gods of gold. Psalm 106 comments on this very incident in Exodus 32. It says this, uh, They exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. You know, the psalmist thinking about they exchanged their glory. In a sense, the glory of God represents here the presence of God with them. And they have the presence of God with them. And that's how that's going to be mediated to them through the tabernacle that they've just had described. And they want, they, they, they're exchanging all of that for gods of their own making. In this case, an image of a bull. Or a calf. The word that says calf here, we think of a newborn, maybe if a calf, but the word here that in the Hebrew that's original, uh, that means, that's translated calf, probably means a young bull, something like this. And, you know, in Egypt, the, the chief of the gods in the Egypt, in the Egyptian pantheon uh, was often represented as a bull. And see, that's, this is a way of representing, this idol is actually representing God but they're representing him in an idolatrous way, in a way that they've seen in Egypt, a God just as the, the head among many gods, rather than the God who made heavens and earth. And it's a direct act of disobedience. And notice in our text, it's not even Moses now, but the idol is, is credited with what God has already done. They said, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now they've already said, well, this Moses, he led us up from the land of, he brought us up from the land of Egypt. Now they're saying, these gods that they've just made have brought them up from the land of Egypt. They, they asked for idols to go ahead of them. When they get the idol, they credit the idol also for their deliverance from slavery. Idols make God too small, you see. They, they contract God to this image. They domesticate God. They try to tame God. They want a God that they can look at and touch and feel and comprehend. We make them, we worship them. Now see what Aaron does. This is a fatal compromise in verse 5. When Aaron saw the idol that he had made, and he saw their response to what the, the idol that he had made, he made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. The word Lord there in the Bible is in all capitals most likely, and that where is where the English Old Testaments translate the Hebrew Yahweh. And so this is a feast to Yahweh. So here we, here we have an idol in the shape of a young bull or a calf that is now being uh, used at the center of a feast to Yahweh himself, to God himself. And so they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. That's exactly the offerings that Exodus had already said would be made at a tabernacle. And here they are doing it their way, not the way God said to do it, but their own way. They're inventing their own religion. How many people have you met who said, yeah, I just worship God in my own way? Maybe you're like that sometimes. I don't want to, you know, I, I know the Bible might say this, but I like to think of God my own way. Inventing our own religion. That's what they're doing. They're making it up as they go along. And it, it, it results in what we might call a hybrid religion or a syncretism. Where they're mixing elements of what they've known of God and what they know from pagan idolatry around them from, from Egypt. 
And now they're going to worship the Lord through the idol. So Aaron is setting this up. Here's the idol. We come to the idol. We're going to have a feast and sacrifices. And it's going to be a feast to Yahweh and the idol at the center of it. So what happens there is that the idol becomes like a lens through which they now are going to see Yahweh. When they think Yahweh, they're going to see in their mind's eye this this image of a of a cow, of a calf, and that all that goes along with that. And so that's what idolatry does. It, it creates a lens through which we see God. You know, the second commandment in the 10, is not just about making idols to worship other false gods. It's also about making idols to worship the God. Don't do that either. And so, in fact, that's the main point of the second commandment. Don't make an idol to worship God. And uh, you, you can't worship God through an image or an idol because he can't be represented by that. You know, famously in uh, in the first century BC, when the Romans conquered Israel, Pompey, the Roman general, marched into the temple in Jerusalem, all the way into the Holy of Holies, and and just said, "There's no God here. They don't worship God because there's no God in the Holy of Holies. There's no idol. There's no image." And the Romans, of course, needed an image in their system to, to have a God to worship. And so that's why sometimes the Jews were thought of as being like atheists, right? Because they didn't have an... And even so, the early Christians were thought of as being atheists because they didn't have a God that you could see and make uh, and touch that, that you would worship. And so they bring these sacrifices to this idol and they call it the worship of Yahweh. And their idolatry, it says, they, they sat down to eat and drink. And that's what you do. You make offerings and then you eat them. And uh, and then they rose up to play. It's a bit hard to know how to translate this word play. Uh, the word elsewhere some in some places means, uh, has a kind of sexual connotation. Sometimes it means scorn and mockery. Sometimes it means just having fun. Sometimes mostly has a kind of negative connotation in the Old Testament. Occasionally it's very positive. I think the point here without knowing exactly what they were doing, is uh, they are, although we find out later that, that they were kind of dancing and singing and things, but I think the point is their moral carelessness. Here they are committing a great sin before the holy God, and they're just laughing about it. It's, it means nothing to them. They're committing a great evil and enjoying every minute because they've become morally careless. So the next few verses then talk about the character of idolatry, verses 7 to 10. At this point, the Lord speaks to Moses, and he said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly, and, and, and he explains to them what's happened, right? We read it already. And he, and he says to Moses, I've seen this people... It's a stiff-necked people there. Let me alone that my wrath may burn against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. That's a rather interesting passage, right? Uh, he says the people... Notice, by the way, he says, your people <laughs> who you brought up out of Egypt. That's quite interesting, you know, because this we, we know that Exodus 20, verse 1, I and 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now... The people are saying, well, Moses brought us up out of Egypt. And then they say, the idols brought us up out of Egypt. And now it's even God who's saying, your people, Moses, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. And, uh, and so this is fascinating. See, idolatry does a whole, does a lot of things. Number one, it degrades. Idolatry degrades. It corrupts or perverts us. The word here for corruption, uh, shikate in, in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, yeah, it can be corrupt, perversion, make something, uh, just make something really bad. You see, idolatry corrupts us because it goes against the very nature of reality, against 
who God is and against who he's made us to be. So first of all, it degrades. Secondly, it's disobedience. That's what God says. You have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. And he says, I've seen this people. It's, it's a stiff-necked people. doesn't mean that they woke up having slept the wrong way. It means, right, that they are stubborn in their disobedience. You know, Pete, uh, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, giving a speech, comments on this very passage when he says, You, men who stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. It's degrading, it's disobedience. Number three, idolatry demands I honor and sacrifice. It demands honor and sacrifice. Number four, it deceives. The idea that it's these gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt is a deception. Number five, it deserves judgment. Deceives, it deserves judgment. God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And finally, it divides God from his people. This is God saying, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. In verse, verse one, verse three and verse four of our passage, this people is called the people or Israel. Now is called in verse seven, your people Moses. It's a stiff-necked people. And God is going to destroy Israel. He's going to consume them. And he's going to make Moses into a new nation. This is basically God's offer to Moses to be the new Abraham. Not even an offer. It's, it's telling him what he's going to do. I'm going to destroy Israel because of their idolatry and disobedience. And I'm going to make you into a great nation. That's what happened to Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God to be the father of a new nation on the basis of his faith and so on and uh, and because God just chose Abraham and, and he met him and this was quite remarkable. Moses is going to be the new Abraham. That's something, that's a pretty good offer right there, isn't it? If, if you can even call it an offer. It's what God is going to do. That's an incredible honor. And you see how Israel is about to be destroyed. So we're talking about the character of idolatry. It degrades, it's disobedience, it demands honor and sacrifice, it deceives, it deserves judgment, it divides God from his people. What are the signs of idolatry even now? Well, something or someone which demands a sacrifice that's too high. Something or someone for which you are willing to pay too high a price, something that is overvalued. That's far too overvalued. Is it your career, perhaps? Your success? Your desire for money can be an idol because you're prepared to make unrighteous sacrifices to get to that thing you know i can't tell you how many christian young christian musicians i've i've spoken to who've been wanting to start a band you know and and make it big in the music world and they've said to me you know we're we're not going to be like explicitly christian band we're just going to be a band of course you know they've got to make good music right so so, they say uh, when we get to the top then we're going to break out and tell everybody you know, that we're Christians, and we did it for the Lord. And so, that's a, by the way, don't try that. It's a bad theory, because it, what it means is you're going to hide your faith until you're successful enough for it not to matter, and then you're going to tell everybody you're paying a price that's too high. You're idolizing that career move. It doesn't just happen in music. It happens in companies. It happens in educational world happens all over the place where we we pay a price which is i'm going to hide my faith for the goal that's this other goal that i want this kind of recognition this kind of success but and those bands that that christian bands that try that almost invariably you know end up living just like the non-christian bands around them 
uh, and uh, and compromising. When they compromise at that level, they end up compromising a whole lot else. Their idol is what they've made for themselves, and they become like it. An idol is something or someone to whom you give credit for what the Lord has done. Do you give credit for what the Lord has done? What has the Lord done for you, giving credit to other things? You know, in some cultures, uh, it's, uh, and even in, in American culture sometimes, superstition or faith has a role uh, that is, you know, where, 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 or the stars, you know, people who read their horoscopes and, uh, and they give this sort of movement to the stars, a, a place in their life. Uh, it was, you know, the day you were born or something. It was all these kind of superstitions have to do with giving credit to something or someone for what the Lord has done. Uh, you see, they, they're saying, this, when they said, these are your gods who brought up, you up out of the land of Egypt, they're giving the idol credit for what God had already done. Some, an idol is something that turns you away from obedience to the Lord. Turn, something that turns you away from obedience to the Lord because it becomes too important to you. For example, one of the things that mo- most moves political discussion in this country One of the things that most moves political discussion is what we might call single-issue politics. People get something that they really care about, really, really care about, Uh, some kind of ism. We'll call it an ism. When we call something an ism in English, it usually means it's some kind of absolute. And when we give absolute status to something that is only relative, we end up putting it alongside or even before God. For example... We could do this with our love for our nation. Nationalism can be something that uh, that so moves us that uh, we want to bring, you know, the honour to the nation alongside the honour to God, and bring that in as a kind of normative part of Christian worship, or or maybe even doing something for our nation that God would forbid. Uh, because we're so committed to our nation. And it, by the way, it's good to be, love your country and, uh, and, and to, to, to serve your country, but not at the expense of serving the Lord. Another ism might be, let's say, environmentalism, right? Where the environment is precious to us and that's a good thing. We want to protect it. We want to have clean air and clean water and we want to protect the creation that God has made for us to be stewards of, we make it into an ism, if you like, we make it into an absolute. Now, that's the one thing that rules our thoughts in terms of our political philosophy. It's going to move every decision we make, no matter how much that pushes, that pushes other values, important values, out of the way, no matter the cost to others. Uh, no matter, for example, no matter how much that our environmentalism might hurt the poor, for example, in the way that the regulations work out. I'm just using some examples here on different sides of the political spectrum, and I just wanted you to see that, that, the, that these idols can be something, that there's one thing that we're so committed to as an absolute that we end up, it becomes an idol to us, rules every political decision we make, and ends up hurting other people and doing damage instead of doing good. Uh, an idol is something that you stubbornly follow even though it divides you from the Lord. Something you stubbornly follow even though it divides you from the Lord. Something that corrupts you and makes you into something you are not created to be. These are the signs of a growing idolatry. What's God's response to this idol? He's going to destroy Israel and make Moses the new Abraham start all he's going to start all over again he's going to do with Israel what he did with the world and Noah he's going to wipe them out and start all over again with Moses what you would what you what would you have said to the Lord if you were Moses at this point I'm deeply humbled God that's a great honor I'll watch from up on the mountain while you wipe Israel out 
That may be a legitimate response. Except Moses implored the Lord his God, verses 11 to 13, talk about Moses' prayer to God, and he bases his prayer on the character of God and what he knows about God. We've moved on now to the character of God, verses 11 to 13. And he doesn't pray based on Israel's character. He doesn't say, God, they're, no, they're, they're really not that bad. He doesn't say, oh God, just have mercy on them because really, you know, they can't help it. He doesn't say, it's just a little thing, God. It was only one, you know, one moment of, of one, they only made one idol. <laughs> you know. He bases his, his intercession, his prayer for Israel on who God is and what he has done. And that, by the way, is such a clue to your own prayer life. You know, we were praying for this lady once who was a fellow missionary and she was sick and we're praying for her and she was, she was not getting healed. And, uh, the way we were praying, the Lord just kind of prompted me in the middle of the prayer time because the way we were praying was like this. Lord, you've seen our sister. She, you know, she's just such a woman of God. She works hard for you. She's serving you, Lord. And, uh, and, and she is, uh, and, and Lord, right now she needs your healing so she can get back to the back into the missionary work and do all that you've called her to do. Please heal her. And she wasn't getting healed. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, "Look, you know, I don't want to heal her because so she can go and do some more work for me. I want to heal her because I love her." So I said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so I kind of spoke. We prayed that prayer and then she was healed instantly and uh and it was really interesting because it's it's not you know the character of the person it's the character of god right whether the person it's not whether the person is good or bad it's whether what god is like that's the basis of intercession and so who is this god that moses prays to what does moses look for as he prays how is he conceptualizing god his prayer is based on his understanding of who the Lord is, his character, his nature. What is your concept of God? Who is your God? Is he an invention of your own mind, the God you would prefer, like the gods of the people around, or is he the God of the Bible? You know, it's amazing how we make Jesus in our own image. We want a Jesus who's our preferred God. You know, so, uh, and this fits with, with philosophy over the years, you know, uh, uh, back in the, in the in the Enlightenment era, back in the 18th, 19th centuries, as philosophers and historians were sort of reconceptualizing Christianity and making, you know, and and uh, in their own minds, they they just they invented a Jesus who was a gentle academic teacher, uh, just one like that. They really they, their best idea of themselves on their best day, and uh, these professors came up with a with a, a Jesus who was a, the ideal academic professor, is what they came up with. Uh, people have come up with a Jesus who's made in their own image. Jesus, the, the, the uh, you know, the, the revolutionary. Jesus, uh, you know, you just, you could just name it. There's all sorts of Jesus out there that people have invented and become, but you see, who really is God? What do we already know? from this passage about God that Moses is speaking to. We number, we know this. He speaks because Moses is speaking to him and he can be spoken to. Moses is in a conversation. That's one basic thing is that this is a God who's not silent, that he speaks and he can be, and, he, and is a God who listens. We know that he's watching. He's going to judge Israel. He know that he judges We've already said that. And we know that he is in charge. So we already know quite a lot from this passage. But what else do we know? We know that Moses thinks he can be entreated. He can be asked. He can be approached with a request. We know that he is named Yahweh. Notice how in verse 11 it says, Moses implored the Lord, his God. And and so it's not just the Lord God, it's the Lord his God, because Moses has a personal relationship with this God. He is, and this is Yahweh. Yahweh by the name is God's personal covenant name that he gives, tells Israel, call me this. 
This is my name. God gets angry over sin and idolatry. We discovered that. We know that he also identifies himself with those who serve him. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Uh, he is the God of Moses. And Moses says, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? <laughs> God says, I'm going to destroy, destroy your people whom you brought up. And Moses says, well, God, it's, it's your people, really. Because he recognizes that God has already, in one sense, adopted Israel, has made them into his people. And he identifies with He's a God who rescues. Moses says, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Don't be angry. It's your people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Don't. And we know he's infinitely powerful. Moses says, you brought him up, you brought them up out of the land of Egypt in verse 11 with a great power and with a mighty hand. He has a clear concept of God's character. In verse 12, he says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Moses understands that God has no evil intent in what he's doing here. Why should he? And, and so he doesn't want evil to be attributed to God because he understands there is no evil in God. He is not the author of evil. One thing you need to know about God's character, if you're going to have a, a solid relationship with him, listen, you've got to know that his character is totally pure. There's nothing evil. There's nothing malign. There's nothing bad in his nature. He's all good all the time, even in his acts of judgment uh, because they're acts of justice. God is good. Amen? You know that? Is that settled in your heart and mind? He, he wishes no evil to you. He wants to do you good because he is good. He can be reasoned with. He can be appealed to, right? That's God that I know that the Bible talks about. Moses is basically saying to, to, to God, God, if you destroy Israel, what will people think? What will the neighbors say is what he's basically saying. What will people think? What will the Egyptians say? And so he's concerned for God's reputation. That's how he reasons with God. In verse 13, he then reasons with God on the basis of his promises. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and promised to give them offspring like the stars of heaven and the land that you'll give to their offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel or Jacob. He swore by himself. In other words, he made an oath by himself because there's no one greater to swear by. He's faithful to his servants. He's faithful to his promises. He's made promises. God, you're a promise-keeping God as well as a promise-making God. That's how Moses conceptualizes God. Is that the God that you pray to, that you know? A God who speaks, a God who can be talk to a God who is not evil, a God who is faithful to his people and to his promises. Is that the God that you know? And finally, in verse 14, it's, we, we get the last verse of this passage we're looking at today, and it's so, so remarkable. The English Standard Version, which we read the day says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And the word relented there in the original Hebrew has sometimes got to do, it really has to do with repentance uh, or change of mind. The New American Standard said the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. So you know, English Standard Version has relented and disaster. Other versions have uh, changed his mind and evil or harm. The point is, God did something different from what he was planning. God did something different than what otherwise would have happened if Moses had not had, had not prayed. Listen, prayer is for real. How many of you know that? That when you pray and God answers, 
He does something that most likely would not have happened if you had not prayed. That may be the most obvious thing in the world. And yet some people don't get it. Some people think that prayer is all about us getting, just about getting, us getting into line with God so that we can accept what He was always going to do already. And there's part of that that's really important. Prayer is no more than just asking after all, right? Prayer is listening and waiting and silence and worship and thanksgiving and lots of things involved in prayer. And so part of prayer is us getting in tune with God and listening to him and waiting on him and reading his word and meditating on him and all of that, worshiping. But there's an important part of prayer, which is asking. And when we ask, God answers. This is the God who responds to when people pray. That's incredible. This is a God who's in a responsive relationship and does what would not have happened if, if Moses had not had prayed, if, if Moses had not prayed. Just like in Amos chapter 7, God says, I'm going to do this, destroy, and, and Amos says, oh, please don't, Lord. And twice in Amos 7, the Lord changed his mind about this. And he did it. You know, in Isaiah, 38, the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the king of Israel, gets sick, and it's a deadly illness. He's going to die, and we know he's going to die because God sends Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah to tell him, "Ah, you're going to die, (laughs) and you better get ready for death. And you know what? If Isaiah the prophet tells you you're going to die, guess what? You're going to die. I mean, he gets it right. Isaiah is not some flaky mystic who turned up, you know, in the fringes of your church and just has a word for you, brother, that's going to, he's going to, right? Isaiah, this is Isaiah. He wrote a big chunk of the Bible. He gets it right. And he comes to Hezekiah with a prophecy, you're going to die. That's all the prophecy says. This is, your, your, you know, this sickness is under death. Get ready. What did Hezekiah do? He turned, he's, on, he's lying on his bed, Facing Isaiah, he turns away from Isaiah, turns his face to the wall, turns away from Isaiah the prophet, turns to the wall and and complains to God and and says, oh God, you know, have mercy, basically is what he prays. And then the Lord speaks to Isaiah a second time and gives him another word. You're going to be healed and you're going to have another 15 years to live. Incredible. That's an answer to prayer. This is for real. When we pray, God does things that he would not have done if we had not prayed. It's meaningful. It's a real relationship with the God who responds. This does not mean, by the way, that we're in charge of him and we can go around telling him what to do. I think this passage shows that, right? This is not Moses saying, God, you've got to do this. <laughs> you know, he's appealing to God. Look, God, you're faithful. God, You know, what will people think? God, this is your character. And God answers that prayer. That's incredible. Even for an idolatrous, sinful people who've chosen to put an idol up when they're just told explicitly not to do that. For people who are rebelling, even God has mercy on them. It's not the end of the story. As we go on next week, we're going to see that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you we serve a God who responds, a God who listens, a God, Lord, who speaks, and a God who responds to that intercessor, to Moses and to others like him. Father, we thank you for your incredible character. You're not like the idols that so degrade and divide and and destroy. You're not the creature of our imagination. You're not that which we've made up to do what we want to do. Lord, you are the God of the Bible. You're the God who responds to our prayers and you're in charge. We thank you that it's you and not our own creations that settles the issues. It's not the idols of our hands, Lord, but the God of heaven and the God who created all things to whom we have to look.
Father, in Jesus' name, let us be the people who refuse idolatry and turn to the living God, the God who speaks, who responds, and who has mercy. We thank you in Jesus' name.